I think that's the typical thing we're supposed to say up here. Good morning. Um, it is good to be here. Uh, that's typically a line you hear when uh, you're watching a stand-up comedy routine. It's a transition. It's good to be here. Wherever you are, Atlanta, Toronto, doesn't matter. It's good to be here. But I'm telling you it is. It is actually good to be here today. Um, this is new to me. I am uh, an ex-seminary quitter, dropout, call it what you will. I, I wrote a romantic comedy film script instead of my thesis. I, I'm ADD, and that was my shiny object and took me away. I realized really quickly in, in the world of academia that I was not an academic. I just, when I write, I want to write from the heart. Uh, I want to tell stories because I learn in story. We all learn in story. Um, I, I, I would love to open up with a joke or um, some impacting story, but I think that would elongate what I'm trying to do with the introduction here. As we just read, uh, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. And as a recap to our text today, uh, let me share with you the events that have transpired up until now. So at the top of the book of Acts, we read of the epic conversion between Jesus, sorry, it is not a conversion, it's a conversation, the epic conversation between Jesus and his apostles. We're left to assume that the remainder of the 120 disciples are there as well, in which Jesus, before he flies away on a cloud, says to them, you're going to be my witnesses. So instructed to go back to Jerusalem to wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which I believe you learned last week. They do. It's a half a mile journey from the Mount of Olives where Jesus appeared to them before giving them the instructions and then fleeing from his presence to Jerusalem where they go and they enter this rented house, the upper room of a rented house. It's 120 guys crammed in a tiny house and they're waiting, they're watching, they're hoping. And then it happens. The Holy Spirit fills the house. It fills them with the Spirit. Like they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They start talking in, in, in all kinds of tongues. The, the devout Jews from around Jerusalem who had heard the sound of thunder and wind but didn't see it came rushing to the point of, of, of noise. And, and they find these disciples proclaiming Jesus in other languages. So from there... Uh, they're very criticized, harshly. You're drunk. And Peter steps up. And perhaps in what is the first evangelistic crusade and maybe the best sermon preached in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says, Jesus is the King. To which 3,000 devout Jews fall on their face in worship to Jesus that day. And then what happens next is like, you're watching a most adorable animals compilation on YouTube. And then, bam, an ad for Grammarly pops up. And you're like, what? So you want to hit skip, but you got to watch that timer as the 11 seconds count down. Grammarly is a great tool. Don't get me wrong. It gets you a solid A instead of a B minus on that English essay. It maybe gets you that interview for a job that you otherwise wouldn't have. But we have to see this. I think it's Luke's intent that we see this passage as a pause. It's a break in the action. It's kind of like a commercial, almost, kind of. 
what we see is there's this group of disciples led by the 12 apostles who Luke wants us to see a little bit maybe how they're doing church. And that emanates from that they're doing church. They're meeting together as a group empowered by the Spirit for what Jesus said was gospel proclamation. We've seen them witness to 3,000. We have 3,120 believers that now form that early church of Jerusalem. And what unfolds in this passage is how they do and be the church. So post-Pentecost, it's the Jewish Thanksgiving, but way more important than American Thanksgiving. Can you imagine? And this brand new newbie group of Christians are submitting to the apostles' teaching. They're fellowshipping together, and they're praying. That's what the text tells us. They pray consistently, like a lot. They fellowship constantly, and they're in total submission to the apostolic authority. It's like what we see in this passage, I mean, at first, maybe we gloss over it because we want to get to the action. I mean, it was pretty, pretty action-packed Pentecost, and it's pretty action-packed in the miracles and, and, and the missionary journeys that we see after this. I mean, there's intrigue, and there's deceit, and there's, there's uh, fighting, and there's murder. But we're pausing here for a second to take a deep look at what the spirituality of the early church looked like as they worked out their faith in everyday practice. So I've titled my sermon today, God's Peculiar People. We got it in there. We're peculiar people. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, I would think that the best thing that Luke could show us at this point was that God is and will build his church. And so the three points that I'm going to try and convince you of today is that God, God will build his church through the teaching of the apostles, through the fellowship of the saints, and through prayer. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Number one. So I came across this really short YouTube video. It's three minutes long. And in it, we see this crazy guy He's shirtless, and he's dancing, and he's waving his hands and his limbs all over the place at the Squamish Music Festival about five years ago, maybe, maybe longer. And, and somebody with their amateur footage on their amateur cell phone is filming this unfold. And what we see is this guy, for about 20 seconds of this clip, he's just dancing. And all of a sudden, somebody jumps up, and they join him, turning this lone nut into a leader. And then what unfolds next is a third joins and a fourth joins. And then it doesn't take long for that to create a movement. There's a tipping point. They, they hit a critical mass. And then for the rest of the minute that unfolds, what we see is, and it's hilarious, we see like 200 people form. And they're all dancing crazy, waving. And they're all following the cue of the first followers who are following the cue of the leader. And I just sat in awe, like literally in awe, as this movement unfolded before my eyes. It's become the shortest TED Talk in history at three minutes, a lesson on leadership, on the making of a leader. Well, Jesus started a movement, and his disciples were the spark that fanned the flame. The leavened 
the 11 apostles, now 12 with Matthias being nominated in, they, they're leading the charge. They're, they're the ones who the rest are submitting at the feet of, legs crossed, hunched forward in devotion to Jesus. They're teaching of the entire life and ministry of Jesus. They're, they're all gasping together as they recount the miracles, as they recount the healings, as they recount the parables. These guys were famously commissioned by Jesus in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, a la spirit baptism. We see it unfold right before our eyes. So given the right and responsibility to teach all the new believers, this odd bunch sat metaphorically cross-legged, as I've mentioned, at their feet in awe and wonder, hungry to receive instruction about the new life in Christ and necessarily their task of Christian witness and to fellowship and sharing of meals. Number two, they broke bread together. The NLT says the fellowship and sharing of meals. The ESV and the NIV say they broke bread together. So, listen, some Bible guys, like way smarter than all of us in this room, they say that this was grape juice and gluten-free check cereal. While other guys say, no, 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 this was a spiritually supercharged meal. But I think whatever we might want to argue, probably best if I just demystify the whole process right now and say, it's both and. They were eating together a lot because they were together a lot. The text says that this is the point, whether it was Lord's Supper or a common meal, the entire point of their fellowship was that they did it together. So informally and formally, they did fellowship as the basis to encourage each other to grow in their newfound faith. And they did it in the temple courts and in their homes. All right, a few miles east of Jerusalem, we see this radical community. You might know them, the Qumran community. And they actually required uh, not shared property, but the forcing of the sale of property if you wanted to be considered for admission into entrance. So what we see in the early church, the early Christian church, is this forming of fellowship where the disciples are communicating to the, to the rest of the new converts, these Jewish converts, that they're to spend themselves on behalf of others. And maybe, maybe these guys took a cue from the Essenes. Or maybe this just flowed out of a life of passion and purpose. We don't know. And I don't think we can know, but the reality is, is they did it. And this new radical fellowship radically changed the construct of this new community. Into prayer. Number three. So in addition to fellowship, Jesus' followers gathered in the temple courts and in each other's homes. We don't have a lot here. It seems that from the text that the early believers actually kept attending the temple, set temple prayer times, which was a Jewish custom. They didn't quit. I mean, it's possible, and maybe this text alludes that they saw Christianity or this new movement as fulfilled Judaism. It's possible that they actually saw this as a radical place to, mi to minister and to witness to, to the unsaved. And so they did. They ate in the temple courts. They fellowshiped in the temple courts. They hung out in the temple courts. And they did all this stuff at home. So what we see in this passage, even though we don't know the shape and the size and the color of their prayers, 
They prayed with and they prayed for each other. As the early church submitted to the apostles' teaching, spending themselves on behalf of each other inside the church and outside the church, we saw, we saw stuff happen. They worshipped. And worship ultimately led to witness. So here's a question for you. How do you think the non-believers would have thought about this stuff that was happening and these people that were doing the stuff that was happening? I mean, they're seeing that as a result of this guy, Jesus, radical community happened, radical prayer happened, and radical ministry happened. It's a perplexing question. We have to answer it. I think they just thought this was a real quirky people. But they wanted in. It was almost like these guys were standing outside of the church with their cheeks pressed against the window, trying to peer in to see what was going on. We read five times in the book of Acts that there was mass conversions as the result of a radical lifestyle and a radical message. Five times. The first time, 3,000. The second time, 2,000. And then more and more and more. So that by the time that we're finished the book of Acts, we've seen thousands of people come to a saving faith relationship in Jesus Christ. Okay, listen. Um, this Bible, I, uh, I like it a lot. I've been looking for it most of my, not most, a huge chunk of my Christian existence. Um, it's an NLT, so I'm sorry if some of you think that I'm a toting heretic, but what I like about this is it's a lambskin cover. It's very soft, very soft, and it's a single column, and it has a few references and a few footnotes, but it's simple. I love its elegance and simplicity, and I'm OCD. I'm probably autistic, but very OCD, and so I never highlighted anything in this scripture, in, in this collection of scriptures, this particular book. Never. I wouldn't. Until last week, when I was reading and researching and studying this passage. The first thing I've ever highlighted in this thing was Luke chapter 2, sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 47, which we read in the NLT. All while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And here's the kicker. And each day the Lord added to the fellowship of those who were being saved. I think that broke me. I've read it before. But we gloss over it, right? It's commercial. But it broke me. Um, I, I don't know too many preachers and Bible teachers who um, cry during, before, even after they prepare their sermons or their lessons. But you guys... I cried, like a lot, like a lot. Like this passage like brought me to my knees. We see what the early church is doing and we, we have this suspicion that we ought to be doing the same and so we get in this mental headspace that we need to do and be what the church did and bead and it's just not entirely right. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he was the prophesied Messiah. Luke's explicit about that in his gospel and all through the Old Testament. And he told his disciples exactly that. So it was no shock to them. 
And then promising them power for the mission, he told them that they needed to go and tell a broken and lost community the same. This hurting world who desperately needed Jesus and these disciples and apostles and early believers had the antidote for their sin. It was the forgiveness of sin and the free gift of the Spirit. Okay, listen. How many times do we read in the gospel that they would be his witnesses? Like a lot. A lot. And we think it's about them. It's about the apostles. It's about 120 disciples. It's about the early church. What's funny to me is that like funny haha, not funny aha. Maybe we should, can we turn this down a little bit? Is that we never see this time of peace and prosperity in the New Testament again, ever, never again. It's short and it doesn't happen again. The book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit empowering his church for gospel proclamation. And Luke sets this up with his own gospel. And all the other gospel writers do too. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's God building his church using this peculiar people. That's the theme. That's the theme of our passage. That's the theme of, of, of Acts. That's the theme of the gospels and, and the entire New Testament. That Jesus will build his church using his peculiar people. It's you and me. So listen, I don't think this passage, which we're prone to read, I don't think it's about, hey, that's how they did church, so we should do church like they did. That's not it. I think we miss something really significant if we stop there. And I think the way that Luke structured this with a summary statement in verse 42 and an explanation of that summary statement in 43 to 47 I think he intends us to see a greater vision. So while I think it's also very much about how to do church, I don't think it's only that. He doesn't want us to see only what's praiseworthy about what this early church is doing. I think his, his intention was that we see how these believers were so radically sold out to the person and the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ as it was delivered to them through the apostolic witness that rocked their world. It totally transformed them from the inside out, causing fellowship to happen. And that resulted in people falling on their faces in praise before God. And ultimately, what happened? Led to witness. I think this passage means something for us today. For starters, We're holding the apostolic authority. It's right here. And this is a copy. But we have it. It's in your hands. It's in your laps. The thing that they clung, clinged onto, clung onto so vehemently, it's right here. We have thousands of copies of it. We have digital copies of it. We have more copies of the Bible than we know what to do with. It's the number one selling book in the world. It always has been. It probably always will be. And we have an abundance of availability. It's authoritative, and it's trustworthy, and it's reliable. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training so that God's servants, who's that? 
busy with me, that we might be equipped for every good work. What's that? That's mission. And when you're committed to getting out of Scripture, instead of reading into it, it transforms us. Let me say that again. It's not a mistake. When you're committed to getting out of Scripture, instead of putting into it, it transforms. So, can you please read it? Study it. Pour over it. And let the Holy Spirit transform you. And about fellowship. Listen, who doesn't like coffee or sushi or nibs in popcorn? I don't care. Just whatever. It's tough with COVID, but find somebody. Get together with people. Meet them. Encourage and be encouraged. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says it well. It says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So listen, you guys. Go sit down with somebody at your favorite restaurant. Or order skip the dishes. I don't care. Just get together with people. Christians, believers, who know God and love God and know that they're loved by God. food or not. Despite COVID, the world is still mostly your oyster. So, to whose house, or which restaurant, or this or that park, or what care group, they all provide an opportunity for fellowship. You could do it over food. You don't have to do it over food. You can do it as the Lord's Supper, or your common meals together can be spiritually supercharged. Just rejoice in God and what he's done because if you don't, the rocks will. I like Nike's trademark here. Just do it. And about prayer. Prayer. We want to want to do it. Don't we? Sometimes we don't want to do it. That's okay. We want to want to do it. We're busy. We have schedules. There's interruptions. And sometimes it doesn't seem like the most immediately rewarding activity. But here's some practical strategies to get and stay praying with momentum. You might actually see something of a staple happen in your life. Try praying first thing in the morning. Or maybe last thing before you fall asleep at night instead of staying on your phone. Pray in the car out loud. Or quiet. Try praying Psalms with David. And remember, Jesus prayed 25 times in Scripture. And Paul, 43-ish. So you definitely have a model for prayer somewhere in there. Most notably, we see Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 to 13, where Jesus lays down the definitive model of prayer for his 12 apostles. So remember that Praying is worship. Wanting to pray can be worship. Even wanting to want to pray could be worship if your heart's in the right place. And even when you don't feel like it, it is an act of worship. 
So listen, here's a great quote. Best-selling author of the Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning, says this. He says, In essence, there's one thing that God asks of us, that we be men and women of prayer, people for whom God is everything and for whom God is everything. That's the root of peace. And we have that peace when this gracious God is all that we seek. When we start seeking something else, though, besides him, we lose that peace. So whether you pray in the shower or on the way to work, while you walk your dog or in bed at night, look for opportunities to pray solo or in community. Pray without ceasing, as Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5. Can we hold each other accountable to that? Okay. I've heard it said that if we know Jesus, we'll want to love him, and if we love him, we'll want to know him. And I've also heard it said that if we believe the gospel, we'll share the gospel. This is not a do missions or else. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about street witnessing or speaking to people about Jesus, every facet of your earthly existence. It's not my point at all. I think the point is, is that worship naturally flows out of a deepening relationship with God. And as the church, as Luke elucidates here, we're told that the three facets of the church, the three things that help, not help, the three things God uses to grow his church is a devotion to the word, that apostolic ministry. It's to faithful fellowship, and it's to devoted prayer. So can I encourage you to pick up your Bible, read it? Like, guys, really read it. Study it, and let Scripture wash over you. Let it drench you to the bone. Meet continually, because God's people are worth it. Even if all you can do when you pray is eke out, ah, and when you're with people, just be quiet. Meet and pray and submit. Can I tell you something? We're not the early church. If what you heard me say here right now was that we're the early church and we ought to do things like they did and we're good, it's not. I, I'm not saying that. It, it actually probably is the furthest thing from what I would like you to walk away with today. I think that we're never supposed to be. I think that they were who they were in a time that afforded it. It was peaceful. It was... There were just circumstances that facilitated that growth and that community and that fellowship and, and that passion and witness. We don't have that today. It's a radical, we're in a radically different time and space, and COVID doesn't help. But I think what we extract out of this scripture for us today as the 21st century church is that God is God and we are not. The apostolic authority is contained in the pages of Scripture, and we ought to spend ourselves on behalf of those inside and outside the church in the most ordinary and extraordinary of ways. Because that's when we fall on our faces in prayer. That's when we see God who is. And that's when mission happens. And people come to Jesus in a radically life-changing relationship every single day. So ESV or NLT? 
I don't care which Bible you read. Just lap it up. Let the word soothe your soul. Speak to you at the very deepest guttural level. Let it drive you deeper into God and prepare you for his mission. Burger King or all day slaving over Julia's, Julia Child's beef bourguignon. Doesn't matter, Jesus doesn't discriminate. And get on your knees and get real with God, continually petitioning him for any and everything that you believe that he has a heart for. Because that's how he builds his church, by turning true worshipers into witnesses. My prayer for all of us in this room today is that our knowing and loving Jesus and each other in community would be so ridiculously attractive to those outside that they stand at the windows, cheeks pressed against, staring in, wanting desperately to get what we have. That our being and our doing might be so terribly convincing to the outside world that those non-believers wouldn't just see the radical difference, but they'd want desperately to know that same God that captivated us. So be captivated, guys. And let your being and doing captivate those on the outside. Because God wants them to come in. Be God's peculiar people. God, you're absolutely incredible. And we love you and we thank you. You've given us all things. You've given us a way to know you. You've given us a way to be with your people and you've given us a way to reach out to the people who don't know you yet. But God, first and foremost, transform our hearts and our minds and our attitudes that our, that our words and our deeds would just be so attractive to the people on the outside that they wouldn't help but peer in, that they would want so desperately what we have because you are a God who saves and Lord, we trust you with the salvation of all. It's not our responsibility to convert people. You just ask us to go preach and to be. So thank you, for, thank you for all that you are and all that you do. And God, just empower us for your mission today, tomorrow, this week, next week, next year, next, and so on. You're amazing. Amen.